What you're about to listen to is an interview I did with Brad St. Croix. You might remember him from a previous episode I did on the Battle of Hong Kong. Brad St. Croix is a Canadian military historian, and this episode is going to cover a rather niche subject, Canada's role during the Pacific War. A lot of people know about the Battle of Hong Kong, but I don't think a lot of people know that Canada actually did quite a bit during the Pacific War. So without further ado, this is Brad St. Croix and Canada's role during the Pacific War. Well, hello, everybody. This is the uh, Pacific War Channel, where I cover the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War and all the major events that led up to it. I'm joined here yet again by Brad St. Croix. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me back on. I really appreciate it and excited to talk about Canada and the war in the Pacific. Yeah, you know, being fellow Canadians, and I have to admit, a big reason why I wanted to bring you back is I am totally guilty of not really looking into it ever. Uh, exactly what was the Canadian experience during the Pacific War? So the Canadian experience during the Pacific War is um, straight out very limited. Um, that's, that that has to be said, I think, right off, right off the beginning, because obviously the attention was focused on Europe, right? Um, of course. As Canada often still does, still looks east instead of west in a lot of ways. Um, that really hasn't changed in the last whatever it is now, 80, almost 80 years. Um, so that's that's one thing to just think about in the beginning. One thing I did want to start, though, with, which I always thought was really, really interesting. Um, and this is even pre-war. So this is in the in the 30s, mostly, um, kind of in the interwar period, is actually most of the defensive thinking is probably the best way to put it, thinking and actual money and, and, and you know coastal guns, all that stuff was actually on the West Coast. Yeah, there was concerns of what Japan was going to do. Um, they were concerned Japan might act on its own. Uh, go after the United States um, and didn't really, the Canadian government didn't really think they could sit out. So they had to kind of prepare for that. Um, the thinking was that if a conflict were to say break out in the Pacific and then that's followed by one in Europe, you know, caused by Nazi Germany or something like that, the Royal Navy could step in and, and kind of really take care of the East Coast. Of course, as we know, things flipped, right? There's the war in Europe is first uh, involving Canada. So that really changes the thinking. And I think after that, really, the Pacific obviously takes a back seat because Canada's involved in the war in Europe for much longer uh, and much earlier uh, than they are in the Pacific, right? They don't come along until the rest of you know the Western powers do as well. So it, it, it's a limited kind of view, and that's very much on purpose. Um, we've talked, obviously, previously about the Battle of Hong Kong, you know, the first and largest, really, contribution of the Canadian army, but even in the Canadian military, generally speaking, um, it's it, it's a full out two, two battalions plus, uh, you know, a brigade group uh, for an HQ, all of that stuff. So it's just under 2000 uh, Canadian soldiers are involved and two uh, nursing sisters are involved in the battle. Uh, so that lasts from the 8th to Christmas Day of 1941. Uh, and again, check out the last uh, last talk we did and we're covering a good chunk of that. But, yeah, I'll just let the audience know because it's actually not on my personal channel. It's on my personal podcast. But uh, if anyone is interested, you can find it at the uh, Kings and Generals podcast. Uh, but you know what? I'll probably re-upload it as a video soon on this oh, cool. uh, YouTube channel because it was an excellent conversation, really in-depth into everything about Hong Kong and after the Battle of Hong Kong because a lot of people forget about that. Yeah, I mean, we can we can probably get that talked about that as we, we move along, talk about some other topics because they are intertwined. Yeah. Um, as these things tend to be, <laughs> yeah. as history tends to go, as I'm sure a lot of you, you and your listeners are very much aware of. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, so Hong Kong's really, really the first 
involvement. I mean, we talked about why um, all that happens. I don't want to get too much in that again. There's there's kind of a concern within the Canadian public and in the, the opposition in, in the Canadian House of Commons that Canada hasn't done enough in the war in Europe at that point. By by the summer of 1941, Canadian forces and the army hadn't really fought. Obviously, the Air Force and the Navy are very heavily involved and had been since day one. But the army had been seen to be sitting around. I can't see if I'm doing the air quotes, sitting around, <laughs> um, obviously, because Dieppe hasn't happened yet. Um, so there's a lot of concern of we got to do something. Um, so that's where Hong Kong kind of comes into play. It's It was a low political risk for Prime Minister uh, William Mackenzie King, uh, William Lyon Mackenzie King, <laughs> longest name for Prime Minister I think we've ever had. Um, yeah. It was a low political risk for him because he wanted to be seen helping Britain, and that was helping Britain by helping defend a colony, but also at home, kind of avoiding that domestic uh, opposition, basically, to anything that might lead to overseas conscription, uh, which is a massive issue for him. Um, he may have overblown it in certain cases, but I do think, whatever you think of him, I do think he masterfully handled conscription. It was a very slow burn. Uh, and anyway, that we can come back to that again, because it kind of connects a little bit to some stuff that takes place at the end of the war. Uh, that we can move on to. But uh, yeah, so that's how I really like to set the scene with Hong Kong. It's not just some sort of, you know, Britain telling Canada what to do or Canada, you know, sending their troops to die for no reason, because that's not what happens. The risks are understood, not as well as they could have been, but they are understood. Um, and it's got more to it than just sort of an imperial relationship. Um, and as uh, we know, the, the battle goes very poorly. I mean, the Canadians hold their own, I argue, uh, and best they can in the circumstances. I feel like with Hong Kong, we project backwards, particularly, in, uh, sorry, project forwards on previous events, if that makes sense. Because in Canada, right, we, we really focus on Northwest Europe and Italy, which 43, 44, we're projecting those standards on a much earlier time period where eight Canadians hadn't been in the fight at all yet. So it's, and there's all kinds of issues with equipment and um, all that kind of stuff that goes along with it. So it's, it, it's a big it issue. It is uh, interesting that you bring up the issues of equipment. I I'll probably try and bring it up later, but uh, in joint operations with the Americans, often the Canadians would end up having to adopt American equipment. Uh, the organization of their military structure, too, in some cases. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can get to that and then kind of why that is um, in a couple of cases. But Hong Kong, again, because it's early, like in terms <laughs> of the very beginning. <laughs> It's the beginning for the Pacific, obviously, for the Western powers, right? I mean, China, as you cover greatly <laughs> and very well done, uh, is involved for a very long time. But the Western powers are not really. Um, so, again, we discussed that last time, so I don't want to take too much more time in that. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there, you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons. And other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. But again, it, 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 the colony falls along with colony after colony after colony at that point, right? The Philippines, uh, all the way through, right, to Singapore, uh, Indonesia, Dutch East Indies at the time, uh, and, and all the way basically to the gateway of Australia until things sort of turn around, Coral Sea and Midway and all of that stuff. Yeah, they but, well, they scared the Australians with the raid on Darwin, but 
Yes. As much as the IGA talked about an invasion of Australia, it yeah. was never a feasible thing. Logistically, it was insane. So Yeah, and I mean, that's going to kind of come up again, obviously. I mean, logistics in the Pacific War, I think, are understudied oh by everybody. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's just massive distance. Even today, like, I, I just look at the Pacific, you know, when you're flying somewhere and you're just... Hawaii is said to be halfway, and I'm like, it's not even close to halfway across. Like, it's not yeah. even close. It's just massive today. So imagine at this time when you're trying to move armies, it's it's extremely difficult. So yeah. I think that's important to remember, and that's going to kind of come up again um, because the next one you wanted to discuss is connected to sort of, and that's what we can kind of talk about, but is is connected to Midway uh, and, and kind of that second round of. Uh, I guess second round of offensives, I guess you can call it. Um, uh, yeah, I like to call it. It's kind of, I mean, the Japanese are changing their posture because of the Midway disaster. They're yep. not necessarily, they haven't really, they haven't lost the initiative yet because that comes after Guadalcanal, but yep. they've definitely taken a big bloody nose. But ironically, the decision to add the Aleutian Islands campaign right. is a big reason why the Midway operation failed. It was a terrible, terrible fault on... Honestly, Yamamoto should have fought harder to not have it, not have the others demand such things. I mean, the Imperial Japanese Army also demanded they physically invade Midway Atoll, and by any measure, no matter how the battle went, every single one of those Japanese, if they tried to land, would have been mowed down. It would have been a disaster. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such an interesting topic to look at in terms of the Japanese perspective because, yeah. again, as a lot of people are aware, there's that tension from the beginning, even when they kind of basically took over the Japanese government between the army and the navy. They don't get along ever. <laughs> you know, oh, even up to the end, they're not getting along, and there, it's just so fascinating. There's a few stories of predominant commanders who do get along and have joint operations. It happens in the Northern Solomons for a brief period of time. Uh, right. General Imamura and uh, Kuzaka. I think it's Admiral Kuzaka. And they have a, a, a little bit of a friendship. They actually force their men to eat at the same table and talk. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. so funny to hear about. But yeah, to get back to uh, the Aleutian Islands campaign, I just yeah. wanted to add in, it's a little minor event that is kind of insignificant but i thought it was kind of cute to mention because i i did have to write a special episode for kings and generals about um bombardments on the western coast yes. of the united states and yeah. there was a place in canada that was technically attacked technically yeah so yeah just as a quick aside it's uh the lighthouse yeah technically we're saying technically i'm saying that very loosely <laughs> they miss yeah. <laughs> they don't even hit it yeah. um they fire a couple of rounds i'm not even sure how many That's i don't even think they even 30 uh, 5.5 inch shells. They don't even hit anything. I mean, they Nothing. hit the ground, technically. They, they the scared the guy at the lighthouse, certainly. Yeah, didn't even come close to the lighthouse, which I think is just fascinating, just because, yeah, yeah. I guess, to kind of, because they can. Um, it's well, an interesting one. And they never come back. Um, yeah, because, again, it, we talked about the distances are massive. Ironically, it, it did have kind of an effect. Like, But like you mentioned, in the 1930s, they did raise the defenses and the batteries on the western coast. Oh, yeah. But for uh, Mackenzie... Uh, it, it's an interesting because I, I wanted to look into this. I was really digging into anything I could find for some notes. And I found out in 1995, CBC put out a fifth estate report that hmm. was trying to perpetuate evidence that they thought it might have been a false flag operation no. and that it was to increase support, apparently, for Prime Minister McKenzie's wartime policy. So the conscription thing, 
which is ludicrous because we actually know that the job it was the ice it was the i-26 i actually know who was yeah. on that submarine it's yeah we know the know. whole story i mean yeah it's, it, it's completely cooperated now but yeah, uh, that, yeah that doesn't even make any sense of why king would do that um 1995 and they came up with this with what i don't know what evidence because this was a small article i found but i thought that was kind of funny it doesn't I'm sure it's made up of nothing. Um, oh, yeah. They probably like misunderstood what King was saying, like something in his diary. I mean, that diary is pretty thick if you don't. I mean, it's a great resource. But if oh, you don't understand how King wrote, you can get very confused very quickly. And it took me a long time to, because he's a terrible writer. Because I was just, this is a quick aside, but I've always, you know, I was looking at uh, stuff for V-Day, actually. And, oh. uh, you know, you always hear about these speeches and all these things. And I'm like, and you listen to King's speeches and you're like, yeah, I can see why we don't have these as a kind of use because they're just terrible. He just kind of rambles on and he speaks almost like Yoda in a backwards kind of <laughs> way. And it's just anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I don't really a false flag. That makes literally zero sense. No, it was the weird. It was one of the weirdest things I had to find in all of this time when I was looking for any tidbit information. I was even looking for. Canadians were involved in the Burma campaign lightly. Yes. There were officers who were assigned yep. to certain groups. Yep. But to get back to the Aleutian Islands, I, I guess maybe I'll just tell the audience because a lot of people really don't even know about this. So yep. everyone who's watching this probably knows a little bit about Midway. There's been so many movies. It's honestly, it's kind of the most popular battle of the Pacific War. Yep. Part of the Midway operation was a invasion of what we call the Aleutian Islands. Uh, the two most important ones, although there are many others, was Atu yep. and Kiska. Yep. So the Japanese uh, took these who were, they were occupied by Americans kind of loosely at the beginning. They pushed aside the Americans. I mean, literally on Kiska, I think it was just a handful of people who were stationing something. Yeah, Kiska was, uh, it's, yeah, Kiska's got a lot of, and we can get into this, but a lot of misunderstandings surrounding just Kiska itself. I don't know as much about Atu, but I, I know at Kiska, there is no military presence at all. I've heard it was an inhabited, uninhabited island, which is not true. Um, there was, uh, uh, indigenous people still living on oh on, yes of course uh, they, they don't live there now i mean and if anyone's ever seen any videos of this place it makes perfect sense why humans don't live there this place is just inhospitable as a definition um anyway we can get to that in a second but yeah it's part of the the midway campaign and another thing with the myths right is it's part of the campaign and there's we were talking about we alluded to that uh disagreements <laughs> it's putting it very mildly about what to do with midway and how to go about it the army wants to, you know, do what armies do, yeah. uh, and occupy. Uh, so they do that. But it, it, one of the things that I often see, and maybe not in your audience, I'm sure they know, but people seem to think that, you know, the Aleutians were occupied first. They weren't. Um, Midway happens first. So they mess yes. up their own plan. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. quite work how they want it to go. And I think that's just kind of going back to what we were talking about before, just this lack of coordination. And I think they are losing steam even before that because they're making decisions that don't quite make any sense. I mean, the it's getting a little bit dated now, but the greatest well, I think there's are there are better books now, but the greatest book back in the day was Shattered Sword for the Midway. It really looks at it precisely minute by yeah. minute. And yeah. you know, they'll break it down to like the way that they describe it. Yamamoto was particularly bad with this overcomplicating plans. Yes. Too many sure. different units, too many different timetables, too much variables open. And I mean, when they put Nagumo in charge of all this, he was a guy that was by the books. He he'll do exactly what you say, but he is not open minded to what to do if something changes. Yeah. Great, great kind of guy to have because you know exactly what he will do. But when Yamamoto was determined that there was no chance the codes were broken or that the American carriers might just show up on them, yeah. well, we, we all know what happened. 
But for yeah. the Aleutian Islands, which was really a, a secondary thing off to its own, yep. the Japanese have now landed on what's technically called American soil. Technically, yeah. yeah. It's uh, a U.S. Alaska at the time is yeah. U.S. territory, just like Hawaii. Um, so it's not a state, but it is somewhat different than a colony. Again, I'm not really sure what the actual differences are. <laughs> I don't think there is any difference. I don't difference. know if they know. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody still knows. Um, anyway, yeah, so it is it is technical U.S. soil, so it's the only one that's holding by the enemy yeah. for any extended period of time. And like I said, you know, you have Atu, which is just a completely brutal, brutal battle. People don't know. I, I have to give it to, uh, I, I know because I write, I, I I didn't write the episodes, but I edited them. Kings and Generals did uh, quite a few episodes because it's a week by week uh, format yes. for yep. the Atu battle. And I myself was ignorant as to how unbelievably terrible Atu was. It yep. was insane. How bloody and how many people... We're suffering because of the conditions, because the United States Army was issued leather boots at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, not good. <laughs> it's 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 really bad. I mean, it's just determined Japanese resistance, which you're going to see time and time again. Oh, it's like, like a very much a precursor to things like Okinawa. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Atu is, is a brutal fight. There's not really any Canadian involvement, Army involvement. No. Uh, there's a little bit of the Air Force is involved. So the RCAF, and I'll state this now, is involved throughout the Pacific. That does happen. That happens from even before yep. uh, the official yeah. outbreak of war right through to the end. I mean, the last Victoria Cross is is actually, well, not, it's a Navy, but it's a Navy aviation, um, which in this country now is one of the same. <laughs> oh, um, okay. It's yeah. mixed together now, so this is why I cover it this way. Um, but it's, it's a Canadian, right? So it's uh, we can get to that later. But it's uh, something I do want to say off the, off the top is the, the RCAF is involved or RCAF personnel. And the Navy as well, the Royal Canadian Navy is involved in small pieces, um, particularly along the coast. But there's a much, you know, much more interesting story that we'll get to later. Um, <laughs> yeah, some I, of your I, uh, audience knows where we're going with that one. I'm interested uh, in that yeah. one. I've kept myself very ignorant of that story, by the way, because I wanted to let you tell it. Because it's <laughs> when you 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 mentioned a little bit of it, and it sounds so crazy. But yeah. it's it's yeah. Anyway, it's it's not a complicated story, but it's just so strange. Um, anyway, uh, there's the little teaser. Uh, so, but yeah, so so moving forward in into Kiska, right? Because Kiska doesn't really have any U.S. defenses. There's not an outpost, nothing like that. There's concerns over it being an air base, but when you look at Kiska, you're like, not possible, yeah. <laughs> not easily possible. Uh, the place is very rounded hills, and it, again, it looks like something out of like the Lost World from an H.G. Wells novel or something. Um, it's uh, it's it's just out otherworldly, as I like to say about Kiska. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So the uh, there's a bombardment of Kiska for an extremely long period of time. Um, oh yeah, hitting the positions, anything they. Anything they can see, uh, it's, which is hard because the the fog coverage of it does not allow aerial bombardment to like. And when the planes can even make it, I mean, yeah, a lot gonna, of planes are lost just trying gonna to say uh, there's there's high loss rates for the small amount that it is. Yeah. And on a good day, it's still foggy. It's cloudy. Um, very difficult. The ships sometimes can't even get close because they can't see. Uh, airplane, yeah, air crews get lost all the time, or they think they're over Kiska and they're not. Um, and again, we, I mean, we can talk about that now, but the outright intelligence failure, <laughs> I mean, luckily, it doesn't really have any impact technically um, for any, you know, very small loss of life, but we'll get there. But that huge allied intelligence failure yeah. to say, well, you know, well, uh, just to catch the audience up. Before we get to uh, what is the uh, the retaking of Kiska, uh, 
from for an early half of the Pacific War, there's kind of a, a whole separate command going on in Alaska. And they don't yes. I mean, they have basically all the hand me down ships. They have the worst of the worst. Even their Air Force units at the beginning are, are pretty rough. So they're building up. But once they start to build up, they start taking smaller and smaller islands, getting closer and closer to what is yes. Atu and Kiska. Yeah. But what was kind of interesting is at the last minute, they decide to attack Atu first. Yes. Correct. as a deception and they also raise an enormous blockade and they they force a few naval battles against the uh, japanese which utterly hurts the northern pacific forest for the japanese like they they know they're at a point where they just can't contest the blockade and that's what really right. starts the operation to invade atu now atu is further than kiska so yes. by taking atu you've actually completely isolated kiska so it was yeah. almost like a two for one in a lot of ways because they knew if they could take atu what are the what's the enemy going to do with Kiska? They're going to freak out and try to evacuate, which is what they do end up doing. And what he will bring up now is the Allied intelligence as to how that goes about with the evacuation. Yeah. So the evacuation, I don't know too much from the Japanese perspective. I mean, it's seemingly very orderly. Um, it was a miracle. Special. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they pretty broke much through the blockade somehow. To get through that block. Well, that's what I mean. We're talking about that. With the ships, right, and the yeah. and the planes and the crews can't see. This is how they slip out. I mean, it was literally like... described in one book as one of the worst fogs that they had seen, and oh, yeah. they went right through it. Yeah, you you can't see anything. I mean, there's video from Kiska. It's 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 incredible of what you can see or can't. <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. But yeah, the the ability to get out and in full order is just mind-boggling in and of its sense. I mean, you got a little bit of luck on your side as these things tend to happen in military history. There's always a little element of luck, uh, but when to know when to move through is is using destroyers to get those troops out is just, it's just for all kinds of reasons. Because again, like I said earlier, the, the sea around these islands isn't exactly the you know calm, easy. They <laughs> lost a lot of ships around. on pinnacle rocks and all sorts of things, especially yeah. when, uh, when they were unloading troops at Atu, there was a, Yes, a transport. No, it was a destroyer that got wedged right against the rock, and they almost lost the ship. They almost lost the ship. They lost so many aircraft too during that too. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's just again, I can't really because uh, I typically work with video, right? So it's, it's it's without that visual, it's hard to really push forward. How like you'll anyway, you can see this in other places. It's just it's it's mind boggling. But yeah, so the Japanese getting out is yeah one of their best withdrawals. <laughs> yeah, I see. <laughs> Guadalcanal. Them, so. Yeah, Guadalcanal <laughs> was a miracle story of how they got out of there. And yeah, yeah Kiska is definitely a miracle story. It's got to be the, those got to be the top yeah. two. <laughs> I mean, there's not many to pick from uh, <laughs> on that level anyway. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's amazing that they pulled this off and all without the allies knowing anything. Nothing. They knew nothing. And why we know that is because all kinds of factors. The Navy, like we said, couldn't even get that close because it couldn't see. Um, so they couldn't get close until this sort of fog dissipates. And even then, that doesn't really give any tips to what's going on. Um, again, you know, planes can't fly when they can't see so much back in those times. Right. You're not flying by instruments too much or you don't really shouldn't be, <laughs> and particularly in those conditions. And that far from bases, because, again, the distances are still massive. The Aleutians chain is massive. Very, very long. Yeah, very long. Uh, so it, it adds to that. Um, but another thing and I thought is so interesting and how these things go and being a historian and working with memory and all this stuff is pilots after we had now had the records know that the Japanese were gone. 
claim to be getting shot at. And they can't explain it. <laughs> Still unexplained all this time later uh, that I'm coming up, actually 80 years is coming up and it's not explained. They don't know. Could it have been anything? Could it have just been explosions on the island from time, you know, demolitions? We don't, we don't know. But I think it's just so interesting is that these pilots report being shot at so that the island is occupied. So this is what leads to what I, you know, quote unquote, call the battle of Kiska or the battle that never happens because for in the terms of things, yes, it's small. Uh, and I and I understand that, but from the Canadian context, it it had the potential to be massive. Big. Yeah, for all kinds of reasons. Um, we talked about yeah how Atu right was a bloodbath. That's what Kiska was expected to be. Oh, because of Atu, yep. they had made great a lot of changes, and that's honestly why the Canadians forwarded such units and a special operational unit too yeah, exactly. on top of it. Yeah, because this was supposed to be the first again battle of the uh, first special service force. Yeah, right, the combined American Canadian unit um, with their highly specialized training in all kinds of areas, parachutes and Par- the the parachute. Uh, the first is it the first parachute battalion or is it the second parachute battalion? Uh, I'm not sure. No. Uh, anyway, but that was supposed to be their first, you know, test of battle. That was the idea, is that they would learn here, which, again, obviously doesn't happen. And they leave fairly quickly because there's no point in having them sit around. Uh, but, yeah, so that's the idea. They're going to throw a lot of forces at Kiska, like you said, to learn from what happened at Atu, try to stagger the landings um, in two different portions of the it's island because it's a yeah. bit of an oblong but very skinny kind of island. So it's it, it's yeah. best to cover it from two different perspectives. Yeah, for and the audience. Yeah. yeah, for the audience, the Canadians, the Americans are literally landing on what you would say is like two separate sides of the island. Pretty so much. Pretty a yeah. pretty simplistic battle plan, I guess, is to just converge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Um, is keep it simple <laughs> for that because also there's not much you can do. There's hardly any yeah. landing beaches. Like they barely exist on this place. Like it's literally high cliffs, and there are beaches, but it's almost kind of like in Gallipoli. Like there's a beach. Yeah, but there's not much else right after that. It's just cliffs and high mountains. And there's just not much to move area to move around. So they only are limited by their choices. And that was kind of the was the thinking is we'll stay away from the, the quote unquote best beach that the Japanese had. As they could tell, as close as they could tell, <laughs> was highly defended. Um, but as it turns out, they land and there's nobody there. Uh, but they, they don't think- know that. They think there are Japanese there. They think they're there when they come ashore because the Americans land first uh, on their beach. Uh, they think they're there. They think they're getting shot at. Um, they weren't. <laughs> Again, yeah, yeah. it's not blaming them, not judging them. It's just adrenaline battle, fog of war, literally fog also. It's just it's so much going on. And it takes some time to realize what's happening because you just yeah. don't expect that coming into this fog-covered damp, windy island that you've never been to, that the enemy has been in for quite some time now, that they've dug into, and they knew they dug into, because especially afterwards. To give the audience just kind of an idea of what's going through these guys' heads. So, basically, 28 Japanese were captured on Atu, and I think it's like 25, uh, 25, 28,000 men die. A lot yes. by suicide, mind you, at the last hurrah. Yeah. They do a, a last bonsai charge with uh, their captain with his sword. Going. It's an incredible story. 
Yeah. And they even raised a monument to it. They were so impressed by it. It's very rare that the Americans would do this for the Japanese. Yeah. But so they're coming right off of this extremely bloody campaign. Mm-hmm. When they get on the Kiska, like the, the weather is bad. The fog is there. They can't see anything. The Japanese are not there, but the Japanese have left booby traps, which is something they like to do. There's also some mines in the water, and there was a ship, I think I wrote somewhere in the notes, the USS Abner had hit uh, a mine, killed 71 guys and wounded 47. So, you know, the blood's hot for everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's it's expected to be a very tough fight right from the get-go. Yeah. Um, because the again, the topography of that island is favors the defender uh, yeah. in every way imaginable. Um, and again, like I said, the Japanese had time, which is, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners know, is is a key element, uh, especially right. in this place. You can dig in very well. Um, and for for this kid, for most of these men, uh, they, some of them, yes, they have been. Like, a lot of these guys have been trained in the Aleutian Islands, but they're coming across still unknown territory and the booby traps some of them are timed explosives exactly. and yeah. they from what i've heard from reading some primary sources from some guys like it did sound like bullets so a lot of them say they thought they heard bullets yeah so as far as i can tell yeah it's it, it's difficult because they're i haven't accessed any japanese records but yeah they they, they oh, think no. they they rigged small ammo dumps to blow yeah. for that exact reason um to sound like it to throw them off certainly worked <laughs> and it certainly worked. I mean, they are firing on each other. The Americans fire on each other multiple times. Oh, yeah. Until they figure out what's going on um, because they're coming in contact with each other um, very quickly. That wasn't supposed to happen, right? That, that, that's not how that typically goes when you have an amphibious landing that's opposed. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how they figure it out. Um, so the Canadians are still not involved yet. Um, they're going in the next day. So that's another myth. I mean, I, that's what I like to focus on because that's what kind of my academic background was. But this one is just full of so many myths. It's, I don't know what is with Canada and the Pacific and just chalking myths everywhere. Another one is that the Canadians and the Americans fired on each other. It's not true. That never happened. Oh, there is a very famous YouTuber who made a big video on this. Yeah, I'm very much aware of who that yeah. is. And uh, <laughs> that video was completely false. Um, that never happened. Clickbait. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's very clickbaity and it's not accurate whatsoever. I mean, watching that video was painful because um, it's just inaccurate, um, not even close to at all what happens. Um, they don't come in contact with each other because by the time the Canadians get on the ground, they still think there might be on that chunk of the island because they can only move so quickly. Yeah. Then they quickly realize there's nobody here. So that's how it happens very quickly. Um, so the battle basically comes to an end. Don't even can't even call it a battle. There are still casualties. There are a high number of casualties. For the Americans. For, for the Americans, I have a huge number of casualties for what they're facing, which is just booby traps and yeah. ammo and, and things like that. The Canadians take casualties as well. Um, there's four killed. That's kind of where the myth comes in a little bit. Yeah. It's claimed that they're killed in this firefight that never happened. Do you know uh, what killed? Was it? I would assume it was booby traps that killed Booby them. traps. So yeah. as far as I know, Three were four killed. Yeah. So I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was three were booby traps, at least two. Um, you know how setting up looked like a prize flag, whatever. Um, yeah. And one just mishandled a shell or something that he probably shouldn't have been touching in the first it happens. place. Happens. Yeah, of course. And that happens all the time. I mean, it still happens to this day. Yep. Uh, and uh, it killed him. Um, so that's where they come from. That's where the casualties come from in terms of uh, the losses, the deaths. Um, mm. There are other casualties technically under the definition. 
even in the Canadian army of, of wounds and, and injuries, because that's where I think this story gets very interesting is because like I mentioned with the first special service force, they're only there for a brief time. Canadians who go to Kiska are there for a long time. They, they just kind of leave them there. <laughs> oh, I, I, I've never heard this actually. I didn't know. Yeah, uh... they just kind of leave them there. Um, they're there for a very long time because this is in August of 1943. Yeah. Um, this is balmy summer weather in the Aleutians. Um, they're just kind of there to sort of prep it in some sort of way. There's a lot of digging, like a lot of digging. <laughs> Did they? I, I assume they had attempt. Did they make an airfield? I'm yeah, not they, sure. I don't think so. I think so. they had made an airfield, but Kiska was one of the worst places. And they had better islands, and especially with that, too, you don't need it exactly. anymore. Well, then, then the you know, the increasing better ranges of aircraft and, and, of course. and things with drop tanks and things like that. That's getting better as this is all happening. Yeah. Uh, like, because Dutch Harbor is the main base, right, for all of this. You know, so, yeah, only... it was an idea to have a kind of like a like a secondary emergency airstrip. Well, it was really important because actually something that a lot of people, even the people who know about the Aleutian Islands campaign don't realize it was a hypothetical theater to attack Japan. Right. Technically. Yeah. I mean, that had been going on in U.S. planning. For yeah, they they had uh, they had pulled the arm of the U.S. Joint Chiefs and they had confirmed that they thought it could be viable to attack Hokkaido from from the Aleutians. Like, yeah, they, they could. It could have happened. Yeah, that plan had been in place uh, since the 20s, uh, yeah. or at least discussions of it. I would have uh, never have done it, because it would have been a logistical nightmare. With the oh, it would have been a huge nightmare. I mean, it was seen as this land bridge, which it, it is not. Oh, <laughs> not even close. Like, this isn't the Hawaiian Islands here. This is Aleutians. They yeah. are far apart, and they're tiny, and they're inhospitable. But yeah, that had been going on for, for decades within, you know, military circles in the United States, whenever, you know. They start doing, you know, the war plan orange and all that stuff. Uh, there's those oh, pushing. I love the the history of war. <laughs> I like war plan orange. It's evolution and how it what what happens with Douglas MacArthur in the end. That's my favorite conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, but, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that had been going on for a while. And of course, Canada gets dragged into that because yeah. that's how these things go. I mean, again, it's very minor, but Canada's still involved in this and they're still talking because they talk to each other. Militaries talk to each other, um, and it's just it's a really interesting part. But again, not kind of my area of expertise. But it, it's just something that is in mind for quite a long time. Is it's the supposed sort of backdoor kind of uh, land bridge. A lot of terms are thrown around. Um, obviously, it doesn't end up happening, probably for the best. There was one, uh, Ian Toll, who's a recent author who did a trilogy on the Pacific. He kind of mentions it a little bit about if the if the South Pacific campaigns went disastrously right perhaps uh butler and all of them up north would have eventually got the resources necessary to do something to hokkaido but uh, honestly i couldn't see anything else than bombing campaigns that would have been lackluster yeah. what are you gonna bomb is hokkaido is not a primary target at this time so, no yeah. it's not highly populated it still isn't um yeah. but uh getting there but uh looks like a beautiful place but uh, oh, yeah in terms yeah, of sure. <laughs> launching a war it's it's not your primary objective it's not going to knock japan out no. in any way shape or form but anyway it's just such an interesting whole other area uh, and there's more scholarship being done in that i know for sure because my supervisor works on this area oh. um canada and the pacific uh, but the, he's into the niche stuff like the tracking boats like there were spy boats tracking the japanese in the 20s and all this kind of stuff well it's, there is a lot of niche interesting stuff it's hard to find information on like frogman units uh certain oh, yeah. i mean when you look at in the pacific it, it really comes down to squadrons of, of pilots doing things all over in burma and say yeah. like they're everywhere but yeah. 
I don't, I've never read anything exclusively on the subject. It'd be interesting to have a book just on that as a subject. Yeah. It, everything. Yeah. There's a lot of little pieces all over the place. That's kind of the can that's kind of canon in the second world war is Canadians are everywhere. I like to say that when people are like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, a Canadian. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, Canadians are everywhere. Not a lot of them, but they're everywhere. They're everywhere. I mean, everywhere. <laughs> there's a theater that the allies are fighting in. There's a Canadian um, doing something. <laughs> uh, anyway so yeah so another thing i wanted to talk about it why i think and i said kiska had the potential to be really really bad not only because of obviously high casualty rates would be really really bad that doesn't play well at home and you know having a unit that gets bloodied that they didn't really have any plans for after that they didn't plan to use that brigade in any other shape or form however what also gets missed is a good chunk of that brigade were conscripts that gets forgotten in, in all of this. And, and why that's important is because of, well, if you know any background, Canada and conscription and the First World War, and Canada comes closest to civil war than it had ever had. Um, yeah. Canadians are literally killing Canadians in the streets. Um, that's a whole other thing. But it's it, it's got such a huge weighing, again, back to Mackenzie King. It's such a huge weight on him because they, they send conscripts primarily from Quebec <laughs> to work and this is going to back to your point about you know adapting to the americans because the canadians just kind of get slotted in as part yeah. of this well yeah make, the, uh, for yeah. the special unit force they were using american equipment yeah. they had to restructure to american yeah, uh, yeah. technically it was all under american command with this first special service force weapons yeah. everything but i'm even talking about the you know the regular infantry yeah, yeah the regular yeah that were were slotted they were just literally slotted in they had to change their whole structure they're taking american structure yeah in the regimental combat teams there's no real equivalent in canada at the time yeah so they have to kind of change so this is where the conscripts come in because they play the role of you know the engineers that are within a regimental combat team and how that's organized at the time so so that could have been potentially very bad having canadian conscripts who are not supposed to be technically fighting the enemy but even though this is north america technically <laughs> um there's a bit of wrangling about what that means um and all of that um it has more to do with things like pensions and pay and everything like that but yeah, i think it had the potential to be a massive problem if you're having conscripts getting killed um in large numbers because that's very much was a possibility at kiska um, even as they're still oh, supposed yeah. to be, you know, playing the role of these beach parties. But again, the, the, the topography, if that Japanese artillery had been there, that beach would have been a, a slaughter. So to get these troops in there would have been real bad. And it would have made the other conscription crises later on in the war look like nothing. Crises are minor uh, in comparison to what could have happened at Kiska. So I think that's an important one to remember for Canada and the Pacific is kind of why there's not much else after that because it's more or less to show a support to the united states show kind of the flag sort of so to speak of canada and in the north pacific especially um which is obviously an area of canadian interest um, yeah that, that certainly made the difference that it was in the north pacific yeah, because that's I mean, exactly why they were okay with it so you know quote unquote of why the you couldn't legitimize you, you there's no way you could legitimize the south pacific especially with no. australia and new zealand there so no Although they're forwarding most of their units to the Middle East and Africa, like there's no well, tomorrow, but yeah. And that, this is again, one I haven't done too much digging into with it. That's kind of a point of contention between the Australian and Canadian governments. And I think there's a lot going on between those two and animosity, but the Australians are quite upset that the Canadians don't even send a token one battalion to Australia. 
I, I, I guess in retrospect, <laughs> a to it would be a token one. Yeah, it certainly. It, it was, it, it's just kind of, it's in those, you know, in the, the history nerd side of digging into the, you know, the documents and some of that how do I say, less snide diplomatic language. <laughs> like you can yeah. tell, you can tell they're upset, but you know, you don't write it that way, but they're upset. So it's, it's, it's really interesting of, of how it has that definition or sorry, those impacts and, and everything like that. And Canadians end up actually going to Australia to teach uh, for radar and radios and radios and communications and things like that. But again, that's a small amount, but Canadians do end up going to Australia, just a small amount. Like I said earlier, they're everywhere. Um, but again, it's usually a small number. So that with back to Kiska and all of that, it's North Pacific is big. Um, helping clear out North America is obviously has a lot of play at home, has play with the United States because King has actually quite a fairly cordial and I'd say almost friendship pretty much with Roosevelt as far as Roosevelt had friends. It's kind of hard to tell with him <laughs> who was a friend and who he was just really, really nice to. And we don't really know uh, with Roosevelt in a lot of cases. Secret but, conversations. Yeah, yeah, he was an interesting fellow when it came to that. So mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he didn't write so much down. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Very unfortunate for Truman. <laughs> yeah. Comes into it like, I don't know anything that's going on with these secret agreements you've made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't write anything down, yeah. which is I mean, that was on purpose, but uh, anyway. So yeah, so so King is very much has that in his mind of he wants to work with Roosevelt because he'd been working with Roosevelt even before the outbreak of war, right? With the Ogdensburg agreements and the joint uh, defense boards and all of that had been going on well before Pearl Harbor. So he always keeps that in mind. You know, how can I do again? Same with Hong Kong. You know, how can I keep everyone happy as much as possible within reason is kind of how King goes about it. But after Kiska... It really, really is very minor for the Canadian Army. Um, some small groups are sent to China, actually. Chinese Canadians yes. are specially trained um, to basically infiltration tactics um, to work with guerrillas to make uh, contact because of language. And they can blend in, right? They can blend in much easier um, in what they were trained to do um, with dropping in with parachutes and, and then behind the Japanese lines, again, with the the difficulty that is in, you know, involved in the Chinese theater. Um, it, it's a really interesting story that's not very well known, um, but there are some people doing some work on it way more. They know way more than I do, um, but it does have a place in the Canadian War Museum. So that is, that's important. Oh. That story's told. Um, but yeah, there's some really interesting feats and a lot of political wrangling, which is really interesting. Um, but again, I don't know, know too, too, too much, but working with guerrilla groups, right? Everyone's got their own interests that, uh, that they're working towards. So it's never yeah. black and white. So apparently there's a lot of that going on. You know, um, coming off Kiska, because I think it's loosely uh, related. I actually, I had to make a point to this because the uh, the gentleman who was uh, writing the episodes for the Aleutian Islands campaigns for Kings and Generals, he had, uh, he didn't know about this, but at the beginning when the Japanese had come in, there was an evacuation of the indigenous populations that were yes. on these islands, the Aleuts. Yep. And a lot of people don't know this. Uh, very few of them uh, were actually captured by the Japanese and they were yes. brought to, I uh, forget where, in Hokkaido. And uh, they had a brutal, well, they had a, a pretty brutal experience. It always is for everybody in Japan at this yeah. time. Uh, you know, yeah. But uh, the Americans uh, end up quasi-interning them. Yes. They bring them over to these specialized camps and these groups of people had never, you know, been, they had never seen such trees and stuff and the psychological effect on them. It actually caused horrible depression. There were some suicides yes, and not to say that the Americans were 
outright trying to treat them terribly, but it ended up being a nightmare. And there's a lot of hardship, and it's a very forgotten point of uh, the entire war because technically these people were, quote unquote, abused by both sides. Yeah, I mean they're they're not treated well. I mean that's they're not the only ones. Uh, yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, to both governments, of, and, yeah. and we'll get there. I guess, but yeah, we'll move there next. But yeah, I mean, again, it's it's because it's such small numbers and it's so inaccessible, yeah, yeah. and like that's another part of this. Because another story here from my, my supervisor, because he's actually been to this place. Like he got really. He's like it's he's like it's something out of like Jurassic Park or something. He's expecting like a dinosaur to come out of these long grassy quasi plains I mean, you don't even know what to call any of these geological features because yeah. they're so contained it's, it's a mountain next to a plane that's anyway it's, it's i can't think of a worse place to go <laughs> no it is rough it is it's certainly bad. rough it is bad anyway so he, he he was telling me stories about there was some possibilities that the japanese were actually executing some of the indigenous people so that is yeah. difficult to to because they've been buried there, so it's it's difficult. To, to... I've never read anything about it actually. That you bring yeah. it up, I have never read anything about that. I've only read about the uh, the few that were captured because the Japanese uh, they didn't have a lot of time to actually capture most of these people because all the other islands, the the Americans had actually swung in pretty quick to grab them. Yes. Yeah. And not that the Japanese were going to go grab them or anything, but no. uh, it wouldn't surprise me the Japanese would do atrocities. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's the thing, right? Because it's been so long ago now, and those populations don't live on Kiska anymore because nobody yeah. lives there anymore. Probably best for everyone. Um, it, it's just you don't know, right? It's just yeah. there's this, this talk of it happening, but again, with the Japanese brutality, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so speaking of moving along with internments, internments in Canada, so. And just to uh, note, because uh, obviously, yep. since this is on YouTube, the majority of my audience are American. So, uh, yes, uh, Canada does yep. intern the Japanese, uh, quote unquote, basically on par with exactly what America did. And we kind of followed America's example in a lot of ways. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's interesting. Canada, in the good end, the horrible, it has its own tinge when it copies people. Um, so you you have... Again, more myths. It's it's said to be done because the Americans asked for it. They they didn't. Canada did it all. Was happily very happy to do so. Oh, there was a history, especially in BC, of just oh, yeah. horrifying riots and terrible things because yeah. of really angry railroad workers that attacked Japanese property. It was terrible for years. Yeah, and there's all kinds of exclusionary laws in BC. And... Yeah, this was just an excuse to really let it all just let loose. Pretty much. And and the federal government goes along with it because, oh, yeah. you know, they're at war uh, and, and they don't really have no reason to say no in that sense. I mean, it's it's they set up what's called an exclusion zone, uh, which is west of the Rocky Mountain. Yeah. Keep them away from the coast was basically pretty much what keep them as far away from the coast as possible. So everyone is more or less rounded up. Uh, <laughs> Kind of again, this is all just so relative and how this goes because it takes quite a while, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a lot of show up at this park, bring stuff with you, and you're leaving. Um, yeah. and it happens piecemeal. They were also given the option to leave. Um, you said you can yeah. leave now if you can get a job, say east of the mountains, say on a farm somewhere in Alberta or Manitoba, which a huge number do, and actually end up settling in those places. Um, which is, I think, very interesting for the post-war and how the, the demographics change in some of these places where yes. 
people of Japanese ancestry. And Toronto Lebanese. is the big story I find. Yeah. Well, even where I'm from, I'm from London, uh, London, Ontario, and the, the very small, I'm sure it's growing now, but the Japanese population comes from internment. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so they gave them the option. If you can find work, you can go. If not, we're going to put you in, they don't call, they call them camps, but they're not like what's in the United States. Yeah. That's, yeah. there is a difference there. Uh, again, I'm not saying this is better because it's not, they're not better. Like if they're not barbed wire, they're not guard towers. There's none of that going on. Like they're ramshackle camps that they've just basically thrown together or old abandoned mining towns. They basically just cram them all together and say, this is all you get. Because their their homes, their businesses, their boats, uh, fishing boats, the boats go cars, first, yeah. luxury goods, um, stocks of stores. Like I read a family, I did a story. Uh, I worked with Project Forty Four, and we did a whole tracked a whole family. Like they confiscated all the goods that these guys had been in. You know, this family and and another family it was two families working together that they had imported from Japan for a very long time. They just take everything, and they never see any of it again. And they get pennies. I mean, pennies on the dollar. People say pennies on the dollar. This was pennies on the dollar. I think the grossest thing is the pennies that they get. They end up having to spend while they're interned to survive. Basically, Mm -hmm. they have to buy things. They have to pay for their own internment, more or less. It's that's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and then they're they're, and again, like they're given jobs, so to speak. People move around. People have health issues because it's a different climate that they're not used to. Because most of them have been living their whole lives you know, in the, in the coastal areas of, of British yeah. Columbia, and then they're moving them to these dry, again, no, no, no heat on Alberta, but it's just different weather. A lot, a, lot of them, uh, yeah. a lot of them are fishermen and their, yeah. their, their trade is stolen from them. They can't go to the coast because it's a designated uh, yeah. dangerous area because of well, yeah, they've been completely they excluded there. from the West coast. If anyone's within the West coast, they'll be arrested and removed. Yeah. Um, and this even goes to the Supreme court of Canada and gets upheld. Um, it's just a giant mass and a, and a very much black stain on Canadian history. Um, that I this think was done. the worst part about it is people will be surprised to find out when it technically ends. Yeah. It's yeah. later than World War II. Much later. Um, yeah. it, it's it's again, it's the same way as how it's set up. It's it's yeah. slow. It's slow. Yeah, yeah. It's doesn't take humans into account. Humanity is stripped. Um, and the idea of the deportation after the war, these, yeah, a lot of these some, people had never been to the home country. Nope. So, yeah. And they're given the choice. You can go back, you can stay where you, you can go back to your British Columbia, which a large number do not go back. No, they go East. They go East. And I, the one family we tracked, yeah, they end up in Hamilton <laughs> hmm. um, and they've set their roots there and they've been there ever since. Um, some go, yeah, Alberta, Manitoba, even some even make their way out to the East coast, which I think is really cool. Um, Cause yeah, I love when Canadian stuff gets that, mixed around. It's different... kind of funny. They go from the West to the East coast. Yeah, so. I know. Right. It's a very small number, but it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I just love it when Canadian culture and other cultures mix together. And then also I love all the food. So <laughs> that's why I get oh, excited. Certainly. It, it, honestly, it's, it's it made kind Canada of better. Yeah. yeah it's it, awful. It, it helped culinary stuff. Yeah. It made Canada better. Uh, I mean, it's awful how it had to happen, but it made Canada better by people moving. I uh, wish it hadn't had to happen that way. Um, but uh yeah, so it has a massive impact. It takes a long time to undo all these things. I mean, people kind of just sort of melt away after a while because they have no money either, so they can't really go anywhere. Again, they're not being held by barbed wire fences or anything. Just They can't go anywhere because they can't go anywhere. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're in the BC interior or you're in Alberta. It's kind of a Canadian go? situation. Yeah. yeah, there's nowhere to go. You can't just go down the road because that road couldn't go for four days. It was, uh, was it Jasper? Uh, where was the... Uh... 
Jasper, Alberta, or oh, there was a, anyway. Sorry, there was a camp that was really yeah. So there's somewhere. camps. Um, well, yeah, a good chunk of the national parks are actually made by intern labor, which again is is slightly different as well. And I think that's oh. that's an important distinction to make here. Is there are enemy, as it's called, termed enemy aliens who are interned in these what are amounts to a prisoner of war camp that is different but some people do get thrown in there from who have been technically they were civilians and even canadian citizens get thrown well in. if you're suspected i guess of well they cause problems yeah. if you cause problems they threw you in one of those camps mm. um, but yeah so kind of going back to that at the end of the war the war is over they're given the choice go you can go back wherever you want or you will pay for you to go back to japan and and some were not given the option uh, they yeah. were just straight out forced to go back some had, were Canadian citizens and were forced to go back. Some chose to go back because they didn't want to deal with this ever again. Um, and some of them had never been to Japan, right? Some of them only spoke broken Japanese. And they shoved them on these boats, send them across the Pacific, and then they end up in Japan. Probably Hokkaido, family, too. And this country is destroyed. And uh, yeah. I kind of lose the trail after that. But it's uh, I can only imagine the, the more suffering that results from from that policy, which was just, again, awful. And still, we still feel the legacy of that one today. Well, you know, I, I guess to bring upon uh, the issue of the legacy, it was uh, Brian Mulroney made the official apology, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, because, yeah, Reagan, uh, I think Ronald Reagan had to do something yes. similar at the time when they apologized for it. <laughs> and they gave payments to, to yeah. anyone affected. Um, yeah. Huge. Yeah, it was massive uh again but it's still you know it has like we we're talking about reverberations for people moving uh families moving to different places and still you know the, the scars of being treated that way is not just going to go away after a generation yeah and so I, I, think a, I think a lot of canadians are actually pretty aware of the situation because well david suzuki for example yeah, exactly famous uh, example of someone who came out of this and uh, a, a big speaker about everything uh for yeah, the yeah, united states would be george decay i guess George Takei is probably the best known in the United yeah. States. I mean, there's been fictional characters that were, you know, given internment stories. Uh, but yeah, David Suzuki is the biggest Canadian example. He's a scientist, environmentalist, activist. Uh, yeah. There's all kinds of things. And he's still going. He just stopped doing TV and he's in his 80s. I mean, good for yeah, him. That's incredible. <laughs> right? Another it's guy from London, you know. Yeah. Ooh, I got to rep my London, Ontario people. There's not many of us. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's just so... This is how we, it is well known. I mean, some people are upset about it for all kinds of other reasons. Racism plays a key role for some people when they won't admit it. I, I don't want to go down the, the foxhole that is yeah. what starts with the railroads. There, yeah. I mean, a lot of people understand that, you know, there was these exclusionary acts. There was the Chinese head tax back in the day in 1885. But for the Japanese, it's special because there was a thing that they called the gentleman's agreement, which was yes. this really kind of nasty thing where the Japanese government just secretly had an agreement with Canada and the yeah. United States about stopping immigration. Yeah, they stopped the immigration. Yeah. But so then, it's... yeah, when the United States tried to really be firm on their stance, they started to come up here more and we kind of yeah. played political football with that. And yeah, a lot of riots happened in BC and a lot of Japanese-owned properties and Chinese-owned properties. So the Chinese were thrown into this too, of course. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Terrible things happened. And this is I mean, before yeah. World War II. Yeah, this is all... I mean, some people are doing work on this and, and it needs an overall like hard study like somebody needs to really look at this in, in terms of this but yeah it's it's another stain on canada of throwing these people into these ramshackle abandoned mining towns or camps that they have to literally sometimes scrape a living or an existence and then 
and it takes forever to finish this and get people to places where they can exist again as humans. And it's yeah. just uh, for the audience, on. it officially ends in 49. Technically. It's a long time. <laughs> yeah. The exclusion zone is removed technically at that time. Yeah. Um, no one was still technically interned. Again, this is the word that's used, even though it's not technically well, going on. It's because you, you can't escape uh, especially because you know it always gets mashed up with the united states and what happens so and with the yeah. united states there's a very different situation because the guy who was in charge of a lot of the internment camps really really was malicious like oh god yeah and way. canada it was not saying it's good in canada but it wasn't to that level in that yeah. way but uh, um, yeah, yeah. So, so that's a part of the, the pacific war and why i wanted to come back to that too with hong kong is because garrison is almost like 99.9999% casualties, right? The most are captured. So there's concern in Canada. If we treat the Japanese people of Japanese ancestry this way, what are they going to do to our boys in the Hong Kong POW camps? Yep. So that does get talked about in the higher echelons of government. Clearly it doesn't do anything. Uh, it doesn't stop it from happening. Well, they probably, uh, you know, they probably took a cue from the Australians because the Australians had a very similar circumstance. Um, a midget submarine attack happened on Sydney Harbor. And they ended up having some of the bodies uh, captured from the midget subs from the Japanese. And the Australians did ship them back and gave them full military honors and everything because they thought it might help with the New Guinea campaign to just lessen the atrocities. Yeah, the Japanese gave them a pretty rough no to that. It didn't didn't lead to better treatment for I mean, nobody does anything. The treatment of the Hong Kong POWs is terrible. Yeah. Just like the majority of POWs, and again, most of them taken by the Japanese is just awful. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's discussed, particularly early on, but it doesn't really lead to anything. Uh, fortunately for anybody, uh, there's no better treatment meted out for any of it. So it's it's an unfortunate part. And again, another you know, people don't think it's as bad as it sounds, and it is as bad as it yeah. sounds. These people had their lives stripped from them for no reason um yeah a good number of them are like we said and then this is important they were canadian citizens canadian born bred um, never seen the home islands yeah. never been yeah. to japan um, some of them would go and learn japanese on saturdays like they would spoke yeah. english um so it's 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 a, a really sad unfortunate story but yeah so that's kind of what's going on, on the home front um it's pretty much contained to those areas we talked about um, so moving along in the war, right? Canada's getting heavily involved in Italy, starting in '43. Obviously, the D-Day landings is where the majority of the Canadian Army effort Europe first. Yep. Yeah, and then you know the North Atlantic and the bombing campaign in Europe. So throughout this time, like I said, the RCAF is involved. Squadrons are, like you said, um, are overseas. There's uh, transport squadrons. Um, Flying missions. They even fly over the you know the infamous hump to uh-huh, bring yeah. supplies to uh, to the nationalist Chinese. Um, Canadian squadrons are involved in that um, and do that for the entire war. Unfortunately, one of the uh, RCAF planes goes down, and they don't mm-hmm. find it again for decades. Um, and the War Museum did a great display with that and everything, and talking about those stories. So they finally were found and given proper burials and all of that. Um, so that was that was good. Uh, another connection is obviously Navy. Um, there's naval uh, aviators um, serving mostly, obviously, with the Royal Navy. Um, Canada doesn't have any aircraft carriers at this point. Um, no. them later, and then they disappear. <laughs> uh, yeah. But at this point, they don't have any, um, so they're serving with um, 
with, uh, sorry, with the Royal Navy. So uh, Hampton Gray is what I mentioned earlier, Robert Hampton Gray, is wins the Victoria Cross for taking out a Japanese destroyer on the 15th, 14th of August, just before the surrender happens. He, he attacks it and it's, it's a posthumous Victoria Cross. Um, so that's kind of the last one. I think it's the last Victoria Cross awarded to a Canadian ever, actually. Um, there has been one since. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's part of it. And the, the story that I'm sure some people know and are waiting for is one of the strangest stories. There's no way about to put this. Um, HCMS Uganda. Famous name. <laughs> it's sometimes erroneously called a mutiny. <laughs> Technically, it's not, but it sounds fun and it sounds cool. And I've had multiple people say to me, are you really a Navy if you hadn't had a mutiny or two? <laughs> Canada doesn't really have any. Um, so it's not technically a mutiny, um, but it's called the ship that votes itself out of the war. And that is 100% accurate. So just to back up a little bit. Uh, so once the war in Europe is wrapped up um, or starting to wrap up, the policy that's put in place in Canada is that the troops that will go to the Pacific will be volunteer only. We're not going to send conscripts like we had to do after things got really bad, say after the Battle of the Sheld and all of that. Um, we're not sending any conscripts. We're not going to send whole units. That's not going to happen. Like we're not just going to, you know, pick up and throw, you know, the shoddy air or the North Shores into the Pacific. That's not going to happen. You have to specifically volunteer and say, yes, I want to go. And actually, a bunch of guys in Europe figure this out, that they're going to get to go home first <laughs> and hope that the war ends. And they were right. And they were very lucky that it did. Because oh, they were I'll bring it up at the end. Yeah, yeah, very lucky. They were getting ready to go. They were training and getting ready. But that they some of them figured it out. They got lucky. But So that's the policy. Is It's on the individual to volunteer. It's not units. It's not squadrons. It's not even ships. Yeah. Each individual, <clears throat> excuse me, has to say, I will go. So Uganda is sent to the Pacific before all of this happens. They're augmenting the British forces that are in the area. Um, they take famously take place, uh, sorry, part in the uh, Okinawa campaign. They're part of the anti-aircraft screen um, and all of that. And part of the bombardments of a couple other islands. Uh, that and, sucks <laughs> to be part so, of that in Okinawa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they're lucky they don't take any casualties because uh, they're pretty far out. But they're part of that campaign. That's that's where they go because they go to Australia first and then work their way up. So this policy reaches them. <laughs> they take a vote. They literally vote on the boat. Yeah, that sounds funny. Vote on the boat and in the majority say, no, I do not want to serve in the Pacific. The commanders on the boat have no idea what to do. <laughs> yeah, they didn't think they'd say no. So they thought they would just continue as normal. They had to, you know, call back Canada saying that they said no. That we took a vote and the majority said no. So they're left in place for a little while. The Brits have to get another boat to take the role of Uganda in the force because we know the war with Japan is still going on. Um, it takes some time, takes a couple of weeks um, for this to happen. Uh, so they're eventually replaced uh, and they leave. <laughs> they turn around and head for Pearl Harbor. And from what I've heard, the reception at Pearl Harbor was a frosty one. I would imagine it would not go well. <laughs> not happy that they were there. Um, they were not expecting them to be there. They're like, you're the only one, because this is it, right? This is the only one a Canada sends to fight in that part of the war. So they get the very, very frosty reception at Pearl Harbor. I mean, there was 
again, it's all hearsay at this point. And people said, oh, my relative told me this. Some claim that the Americans at first said, we're not going to give you anything. You get no supplies. <laughs> good luck. Um, I don't know if that's true. I mean, it probably isn't. I mean, it makes for a good story. But yeah. I mean, again, the, 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 it would have been a real frosty reception. So th this is around July in 1945. So what's kind of an, not an irony and kind of funny is the atomic bombs are dropped, which is not funny. <laughs> Obviously, it's awful. But that's what brings the war to the end. Uganda's not back yet. <laughs> when that happens, the war is over. Uganda still hasn't made it back to Canada yet. They get the news after coming out of Pearl Harbor and you know, steaming to the West Coast that the war is over. So they did this all seemingly for naught. Um, because as we know, the, after Okinawa, uh, the home islands just get bombarded. Um, I mean, yes, there's still casualties and that's war. But um, they avoid this sort of end of the war for seemingly no reason. And it, it's taken on this... Uh, well, tint to it because they vote themselves out and it, this name now is tarnished they literally changed the name to hcms quebec <laughs> in the post-war period they don't even keep it as uganda because it's a it was originally a british but it was hcms uganda that's uh, so they just kept the name but after that happens they change the name like people aren't gonna know yeah which ship that is. it's just another bumble after a bumble. It's such a Canadian way of doing this. We'll fix this PR program problem, and actually, we'll end up creating a much bigger one. Pretty bad um, PR, so, especially to come at the end of the war. That's pretty bad. Yeah, and I mean, it's the only real contribution in that size yeah. by the, the Royal Canadian Navy. Obviously, their hands are extremely full in Europe. <laughs> I'm not denying that, but it's it's a support, and they fight. And I'm not saying they don't fight because they fight, but they vote themselves out. All for not to even make it home before the war is even over. I mean, obviously, they don't know there's atomic bombs, but it's just it just adds to the comical thing. And then the government says, hey, let's change the name. That'll make everyone forget. And no one has forgotten what happened. It's just yeah. it's so funny that, that it's because it gets called a mutiny in quotation marks because it's hilarious in that way. And it's just it's it's a mess for a long time after that. And commanders were not happy and higher ups were not happy. And it just turns into a whole internal fight basically in the in the royal canadian navy for a little while um and it goes away obviously because everyone's happy the war is over um so it doesn't really mount to much but other than a name change but the ship stays in the royal canadian navy just as a different name for quite a few years after that you know uh it actually makes for a, a pretty good segue that you're bringing up you know the end of the war because i don't think many people would know this but the well, the infamous what what if uh if operation downfall had occurred yeah. it was going to involve canadians yes so there was, um, going back to what we were talking about, right, that individual policy of you have to volunteer. You have to basically re-enlist. Volunteer uh, for the worst and bloodiest war that anyone is hearing about from U.S. Marines and Army people. Yeah, I can imagine <laughs> there was a lot of volunteers for this. Yeah, well, there was actually a huge number because right, a lot of them figured out, hey, I can go home because they got the whole, they got home leave first. They got about a month of home leave. So that is, yeah, I mean, that would work out in your favor. If you've been in Britain, yeah. if you've been in Britain since in Britain and Europe since 1939, right, that's going to yeah. look pretty good. I mean, that was pretty rare that Canadians got that kind of leave, right? You can't just jump across the channel and go home. That doesn't exist. Yeah. So they, they jumped on that opportunity. But yeah, so the Canadians are training. To go to the Pacific, um, our groups, a bomber group is put together. Uh, the Army is training to do this. They have to re-equip and use uh, some of those already set up regiments 
that have set up battalions that are on home oh, defense. Uh, yeah, I can actually explain this to the audience. So um, yeah. Operation Coronet was going to be the invasion of Honshu and uh, Kanto. And so what would have happened, because this is all on paper, uh, it's pretty interesting. There was a hypothetical thing that was going to be called the Commonwealth Corps. It yes. was actually proposed from Mountbatten. Or actually, was it Mountbatten? No, it was Alan Brook. Is it Alan? Oh, I don't okay. Alan I can't Brook. remember. I think it was Alan Brook. And uh, it would have been one Australian, one British, one Canadian division, and uh, two brigades of New Zealanders, I think. But yeah. hilariously enough, the guy that haunts every episode I do, General Douglas MacArthur, uh, <laughs> he had a little involvement in this because there was a proposal to have uh, an Indian Army division, but he said no because oh. of language differences, organization structure, and such. Of course. Um, and, you know, anyway, uh, Emperor <laughs> Emperor Douglas MacArthur gets his way. <laughs> yeah. I could talk about him for six hours if you want. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> not a big fan. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, so Canadian, yeah, Canadian division is getting trained to come over. I mean, it's obviously going to be a different war. Uh, oh yeah, taking as many lessons as they can. Um, obviously, as close coordination as they can have with the Americans. Um, but again, it, it's so. Not last minute because that's not the right term, but war in Europe is over. It's it's a different conflict. It's a whole different set of circumstances at home that they haven't trained for. Yeah, they're not trained for this. They don't. We don't. Canada doesn't have the capability to get a huge number of troops across the Pacific. I mean, getting the Hong Kong POWs out of there was difficult enough. Yeah, uh, getting them back was difficult enough, and because the only certain amount of uh, ships there, armed uh, merchant cruisers. Uh, we're kind of over there. Actually, the one that sent them, they were sent on, actually came and got in a few number of them out of Hong Kong, which is a kind of a bookend to all of that. Uh, but yeah, Canada is not equipped to fight in the Pacific in that way. I mean, they're going to need help, uh, as we did in other areas, but mainly in the Pacific to be fallen to the American kind of sphere of doing things. Yeah. So again, it's all hypothetical. Who knows how it would have gone, how it would have worked together, how this, yeah, the Commonwealth would have fit together how they would have worked together. I mean, we get to see that in Korea and it works out very well. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, that that is what probably would have looked like. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously it would have been way bloodier, I think. I don't think anyone's going to dispute that. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, uh, maybe it would have been the same. I don't know. It, we just, we don't know. But And many people in Canada can, oh, being alive to that not happening, just like lots of others. Oh yeah, um, Canada is not immune. You know, not Canada is the same with that. You know, hear lots of Americans be like, "Yeah, you know, grandfather was going over the Pacific." Um, a lot of people in Canada too, and veterans, right? And veterans from Europe. So it, it's just one of those big, you know, what ifs. A relief for a lot of people here in North America and throughout the world. Um, that it doesn't happen. I mean, obviously, it's a horrific ending to a war, but a lot of people in Canada were extremely happy that it went that way. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think that's a great way to finish this off. This is this hypothetical, just, I mean, Goddardamarung situation in which the Canadians would have had to throw themselves into that situation, which was averted, which is great. But uh, yeah. I was I was interested to see the kind of inner plans of that. They even had, um, I had the title somewhere in my notes. There was a force that was made kind of at the end, the Canadian Army Pacific Force. Yes. Which kind of fits into this. So. Yep. 
it was going to adopt uh, American organization, the equipment and everything, because, well, probably American ships would be moving the guys anyways. Exactly. Yeah, that was the plan. Yeah. So it was to fall into the American. That's why I said like sphere. It's probably the best way to say it. Because yeah. um, that's well, the Americans had the logistics down in the Pacific for a long time at that point. So, yeah, you know, they're the ones who figure they had to figure it out. And and fib, like amphibious assaults, uh, the Americans are the ones who really learned that. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, and, and it, you know, quote unquote, worked in Kiska. They used American weapons, uh, American yeah. organization, uh, all that stuff. It quote unquote again worked um, without combat, but uh, it was going to be the same similar idea. Uh, and yeah, one thing I didn't didn't mention before though is that there were Canadians over there, uh, officers learning, just like they had done in North yes, Africa, yeah, to learn from the Americans of what this was going to be like, waiting um, and learning and being embedded and, and all that stuff. I mean, and there just, was. Again, even with the uh, the famous British 14th Army in Burma, they, they did have uh, Canadian officers. Um, I can't remember how many of them with them. So uh, in some of the hottest places in this war, there were Canadian officers who were getting hands on experience. With, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They wanted to get that jungle experience working in those different climates, uh, which Canada does not have. <laughs> so can't, it's not like you can do that at home. Um, you know, people in Hawaii were training, all that kind of stuff. So, so that goes on. It just, it doesn't really go anywhere. Nope. Um, but they were yeah, preparing. They were just, they were preparing, yeah. um, which is also interesting. And maybe this could be a good place to end and kind of going back to Hong Kong where we started is, again, we talked about that volunteer basis for all of this. So actually for those who volunteered, they were going to get more money to go fight in the Pacific. Uh, that was oh, also another yeah. draw was, it was called Pacific Bay. You get more pay. So they were given that pay as soon as they had, you know, had their leave and, and joined uh, the training uh, in the West Coast, basically, uh, for that. And that's that's was a big draw. Get more money. Um, growing up during the Depression, more money is going to be a big factor. Um, so what's interesting is obviously that doesn't happen. It, it doesn't go through. So what that leaves is an issue in the post-war world for Canada is you had Canadians fighting in the Pacific already. They didn't get extra pay. They were also POWs for almost four years. Oh, yeah. That leads to a big fight in the House of Commons. Um, and again, it's just part of my dissertation, and it's not a conspiracy theorist, but when things start to line up, it's a little weird. So even the Canadians who fought at Hong Kong were initially denied the right to wear the Pacific Star. Their yeah. outright yeah. said, you're not allowed to wear it. You've suffered horribly some of you didn't come home from the POW camps or, you know, you saw your friends die and you didn't even get to wear this star and let alone, we're not going to give you the extra pay. So it turns into a huge fight in the house of commons and the post-war world. And like the immediate time, um, this is how we're going to treat our veterans um, kind of thing. So eventually they are given that pay. They're given the extra pay. Um, but again, we talked about last time in, in, in Hong Kong and afterwards, and that's just kind of the start of these Hong Kong veterans and what they face. Um, over the last whatever it is now decades and unfortunately there's only one left we have one canadian left who fought at hong kong um, and he's years old so um, we have one left and uh, so that's the legacy in my opinion it's not a good legacy um, but it connects to it's a bookend in a way because it starts canada's in the pacific and sort of ends it in a real another negative tone so again, it's a small involvement, but there's a lot of negativity, a lot of mishandling, a lot of ball dropping, a lot of not good, a lot of poor decisions, and a lot Which of fits not the Pacific. 
Yeah, it seems to be uh, on par with everybody else, unfortunately. Yeah, um, yeah it's just it, it's it's one of those things that we don't because we don't talk about the Pacific that much in Canada. Period. I mean, generally speaking, um, we don't look to the Pacific. We look still to the Atlantic and down yeah. south. And if um, it's ever talked anyway, about, so, just Hong Kong. Yeah. So it's just it, it's still. Um, it's still a thing and it, and it still has an impact and uh but there was canadians in the pacific i guess as if you remember anything there was canadians there <laughs> all three of the services um and doing amazing things you get a victoria cross for one of them so uh, yeah. two technically two victoria crosses in in this one starting it and one ending it so i think that's another good bookend too is there are these feats that are worth remembering in that level because they're both posthumous victoria crosses so excellent and uh, before you go, if you could actually just let everybody know where they can find your stuff, because you happen to be a fellow YouTuber. Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel. Um, it's called OTD Military History, um, where I do um, primarily Canadian. <laughs> I like to, to get the Canadian story out there sometimes a little sneakily. I kind of like to, you know, little, not necessarily a bait and switch, but kind of um, try to cover as much as I can or the things I know. I'm actually in a previous academic life. I was actually an American historian. So I try to bring that in when I can actually working on Pearl Harbor. Um, so it's, oh. it's a really, yeah, it kind of came full circle for me. Uh, so yeah, so I cover things like uh, Canada in the first world war, second world war stuff, done things on war of 1812. Uh, obviously Hong Kong gets a good chunk of my attention for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, I'm also on social media and it's a bit of a different name. It's OTD Canadian Military History throughout other social media branches um, on Twitter and Instagram and pretty much everywhere else. Facebook, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate checking it out and uh, try to cover these sometimes also world events from taking a Canadian sort of perspective or bringing something new uh, to some of these you know well-known events and, and trying to bring a different lens to it. Awesome. So you heard that. Everybody, please check them out. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, always great to talk about the the Pacific. Um, again, like I said, it was previous life. That's what I did. That's where I started. So it's always great to talk about it. Awesome. All right, everyone. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.